in verse 1, saying, In that day there shall be a fountain opened to the house of David and to the inhabitants of Jerusalem for sin and for uncleanness. Verse number 6 says, And one shall say unto him, What are these wounds in thine hands? And he shall answer, Those with which I was wounded in the house of my friends. In just two weeks, people all around the world will be thinking about the glorious resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And for good reason. But as wonderful as that is, apart from what went before, it would have been meaningless. And that is the crucifixion of Christ. Had Christ not died for our sins, there would have been no hope of our salvation. And so everything else would have been meaningless. But our text here this morning takes us even beyond that. It takes us beyond the present age in which we live to that time when Jesus comes again. But not at the time of His coming at the rapture, but at the coming of the revelation at the very end of the tribulation period where He comes and for the first time, for the first time He rules and reigns over all of the earth. The Bible says that He'll rule from the throne of His father David. He'll rule with a rod of iron. In that day, peace shall flow like a river. But I want you to notice here in our text this morning, as it speaks about that time when the Lord comes to set up His kingdom, although He was rejected by the Jews when He came the first time, eventually they will acknowledge Him as the Messiah. In chapter 12 and verse 10 of this same book, it says, They shall look upon me whom they have pierced, and they shall mourn for him. And then our text tells us, they ask the question, What are these wounds in thine hands? I realize that some theologians do not agree that this speaks of Christ. They say that it has to do with a false prophet. Uh, But I am thoroughly convinced that the theme of the chapter has to do with the coming of the Lord and its effect upon Israel especially. And I see absolutely no other way to look at this other than the fact to recognize that it speaks about the Lord Jesus Christ as they look upon Him finally in that last day. When you think about it, it's really remarkable because... Over in Revelation chapter 19, you don't need to turn there, but you may if you wish. Chapter 19, it describes the coming of the Lord at that time. And I just want you to notice a few things that are mentioned here. How amazing this is going to be. Verse 11 says, And I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. And he that sat upon him was called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he doth judge and make war. And his eyes were as a flame of fire. 
and on his head were many crowns, and he had a name written that no man knew but he himself. And he was clothed with the vesture dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which were in heaven followed him upon white horses, clothed in fine linen, white and clean. And out of his mouth goeth a sharp sword, that with it he should smite the nations. And he shall rule them with a rod of iron. And he treadeth the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And he hath on his vesture and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings, And Lord of Lords. Now think about all that I've just mentioned, all of the things that John wrote about associated with the coming of the Lord and how shocking it must be to to picture yourself looking at that sight. And out of all of those things that are mentioned there, I want you to notice where the attention of these people is going to be. They ask in amazement, what are these wounds? They're not looking at the sword in his hand or the crowns on his head or the white horses or the armies of the saints that are with him. They're they're not looking at any of those things. The one thing above everything that caught their attention was the fact that he was wounded. He had wounds in his hands. And I'm convinced that in this, in this picture that we're given, this prophetic picture of the coming of the Messiah that we see here in these wondrous wounds, a story that we need to understand. Notice they said, what are these wounds? This is a question. And I'm going to answer that question this morning. What are these wounds? First of all, they are a silent sermon. When we look back through the Old Testament, we find that God often used visible things to teach spiritual truths. But let me tell you, nothing has ever been so impressive as this. We look back and we think about the glorious temple in Solomon's day with all of its silver and gold and, 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 and everything else about it that was so magnificent and the world had never seen anything like that. Nothing to compare with the temple. And let me tell you, that pales in comparison to the sight of the wounded Redeemer. Somebody has said a picture's worth a thousand words. Well, in this case... A picture is worth more than any number of words because there is absolutely no way to describe what all this pictures. Just the sight of those wounds speaks so eloquently that the greatest orator that ever lived could not possibly could not possibly expound upon them enough. So there is a silent but an extremely powerful message. I guess maybe we ought to expect that. After all, you'll remember that after our Lord had been resurrected, there were those that that questioned, you know, is this really Him? And He said in John 20 and verse 20, He showed unto them His hands and His side, and then were the disciples glad when they saw the Lord. I mean, you've got to try to put yourself in their sandals and understand this is something that's never happened before. 
I mean, Jesus arose from the dead, and although he had told them he was going to do so, still they had those doubts in their mind. And you'll remember he said to doubting Thomas, he said here, thrust your hand in my side. You see, the Lord is appealing to those to those wounds to send a message to them. Those wounds are a silent sermon, a silent message that speaks eloquently as to the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ. What are these wounds? Well, they are a silent sermon, but more than that, they are a sign of suffering. Now, now notice it says here that these are wounds, not scars, you know, we often sing, and I understand, and I'm not complaining about the song because I know what the, the writer intended, put your hand in the, in the nail-scarred hand. But the Bible's not speaking about scars. It's talking about wounds. And, and a scar is a mark that is left after a wound has been healed, but a wound is entirely different. A wound is something that hasn't been healed. Now think about it. After all of these years, since the time that he was crucified, and however many more years there might be after this, when the Lord finally does come and they look upon him, those wounds will be as fresh as though they had just happened. Do I understand that? Absolutely not. I don't understand it. I can't explain it. I just know that's what it, the Bible says. What are, what are these wounds? Not scars. What are these wounds? This is a sign of suffering. It's an evidence. It's an evidence here that those wounds will still be there when He returns. This silent sermon, this sign of suffering, is also a symbol of substitution. Notice the word thine. That word thine speaks volumes because it's speaking about Christ. It's speaking about His substitutionary death. Remember, He had no sin of His own. He did not die. He was not crucified because... He had sin. Remember, He was the Son of God. He had all power in heaven and earth. And He had lived a life of perfection. He had fulfilled all of the law's demands. And so with that great power, He could have freed Himself at any time. As the songwriter said, He could have called 10,000 angels, but He didn't. He willingly submitted himself into the hands of those that hated him and despised him, and they took him and crucified him. He died in our stead. He took our place. You know, it's one thing to suffer. It's another thing to suffer for others. And Jesus not only suffered and died, he did it all for us. I love that old song, He Did It All For Me. Well, Isaiah 53, 5 says, He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon Him. And here's the evidence of His love, if you please. It's written in red. 
the wounds of the Lord Jesus Christ, wherein he demonstrates the fact that he loved us enough that he gave his own life for us. You know, we look around and we talk a lot about love and hear a lot about love, but when it comes to our earthly relationships, we don't see nearly enough evidence of it. But boy, whenever we think about the love that God has for fallen man, when we think about the love of Christ who laid down His life for us, there's no question about that. There's no room for doubt whatsoever whether or not God loved us because He's proven it. He proved on the cross that He loved us. And those wounds that will still be there in that day, those wounds are a symbol of His substitution that He died for us. And then we see in the Bible that those wounds are a source, the source of salvation. You know, we think back through the centuries of all the people that have suffered in And uh, some have even suffered for the sake of others. We send our men and women in uniform off to fight battles that they didn't start. They go off to places that they've never been. They fight for people that care nothing about them whatsoever, and they lay down their lives for others. But there's only one person who has ever died for everyone. And as the writer in Hebrews says, he tasted death for every man. And only his suffering and death is able to save us from his hands, from his feet. As the song says, love flows mingled down. He cleanses us from sin. His birth was miraculous. We think about how amazing it is every year at Christmas time. That God could do something so outstanding, so wonderful, that even without a man being involved, that God could bring a child into this world. So we think about His virgin birth, and then we think about His virtuous life. The fact that Jesus lived and, and, and did so without sin, without one spot on His record. And then we think about His astonishing life and the miracles that he worked and all of those things. And yet, in all of that, it would have been of no benefit had he not died. You see, he didn't come to be a great example. He didn't come to be a great teacher. He didn't come to show us the way. He came to make us a way. And he did that in the giving of himself. His suffering, His death, satisfied all of the demands of justice and enabled us to be justified. Many years ago, a missionary in western Canada told about a a widow there who had lived all alone in a small house. And uh, during the course of the conversation with her, she explained to him that her husband had been killed back in in World War One, and uh, the indemnity that she had received was her only income over all of those years. And, and that poor widow woman made this statement. She said to the missionary, You see, I am living on my husband's wounds. I'm living on my husband's wounds. And when I thought about that, I thought, you know, 
Whenever it comes to the matter of salvation, we have life only because of the wounds of the Lord Jesus Christ. The fact that He suffered and bled and died for our sins. Amen? That He made a way for us. the, The old song says, wounded for me, wounded for me. There on the cross, He was wounded for me. Gone my transgressions and now I am free. Oh, because Jesus was wounded for me. I want to do something really strange this morning. Something I don't think I've ever done before in all of my ministry. Brandon brought a friend with him by the name of Tyler, and uh, and, and Tyler had uh, come to my office and and asked if he could uh, could read something that he had written. Based, and I want you to keep this in mind. It's so very important that you understand this. This is not a song or a poem or something like that written to entertain others. This is something that he wrote based on the book of Romans. And both that, I mean, that is the centerpiece of God's information on justification. If you don't understand the book of Romans, you don't understand salvation. And I was shocked to think that a young man, Tyler, come on up here. I was shocked to think that a young man like him knew enough about the book of Romans to write anything. But he said that this, this was all written out of his own, own personal experience. He's just writing down uh, how he feels as a result of what God has done for him. And I'm going to ask him to stand right here in front of this microphone and read to you what... Uh, what he, what he wrote and I read this morning. Tyler? Good morning. After living a decent life, my time on earth had come to an end. The first thing I remember is sitting on a bench in the waiting room of what I thought to be a courthouse. The doors opened, and I was instructed to come in and sit down by the defense table. As I looked around, I saw the prosecutor. He's a villainous-looking gentleman who snarled as he stared at me. He was by far the most evil person I'd ever seen. He made me very nervous with anxiety. I sat down, and to my left sat my lawyer. He was a very kind and gentle-looking man whose appearance seemed very familiar. The corner door flew open, and there appeared the judge in full-flowing robes. He commanded an awesome presence as he moved across the room. I just couldn't take my eyes off of him. As he took his seat behind the bench, he had said, Let us now begin. The prosecutor said, My name is Satan, and I am here to show you why this man belongs in hell. He proceeded to tell of lies that I had told. Things that I had stolen and when I had cheated others in the past. Satan had told of horrible perversions that were once in my life. And the more he spoke, the further down in my seat I sank. I was so embarrassed that I couldn't look at anyone, not even my own lawyer, as the devil told of sins that even I had forgotten about. 
As upset as I was at Satan for telling of my sins and not giving any room for defense, I know I'd been guilty of all those things. But I'd done some good in my life. Couldn't that at least equal out part of the harm that I've done? Satan had finished with a fury and said, This man belongs in hell. He is guilty of all that I've charged, and there's not one person who can prove otherwise. When it was his turn, my lawyer first asked if he could approach the bench. The judge allowed this over the strong objection of Satan, and the judge beckoned him to come forward. As he got up and started walking, I was finally able to see him in full splendor and majesty. I then realized why he seemed so familiar. He stopped at the bench and softly said to the judge, Hi, Dad. This was Jesus representing me, my Lord and Savior. <clears throat> Excuse me. <laughs> he turned to address the court and said, Satan was correct in saying that this man had sinned. I will not deny any of these allegations. Yes, the wages of sin is death, and this man deserves to be punished. Jesus sighed and took a deep breath. He turned to his father, the outstretched arms, and proclaimed, However, I died on the cross so that this person might have eternal life, and he has accepted me as his Savior, so he is mine. My Lord continued with, His name is written in the book of life, and no one can snatch him from me. Satan still does not understand that this man is not to be given justice, but rather mercy. As Jesus sat down, he quietly paused, looked at his father and replied, I rest my case. The judge lifted his mighty hand and slammed the gavel down, and the following words bellowed from his lips. This man is free. The penalty for him has already been paid in full. Case dismissed. Amen. As my Lord led me away, I could hear Satan ranting and raving. I'll not give up. I will win the next one. I asked Jesus as he gave me instructions where to go next. Have you ever lost a case? Christ lovingly smiled and said, Everyone that has come to me and asked me to represent them has received the same verdict as you. Amen. Paid in full. Amen. Amen. Paid. Paid in full. Thank you, Tyler. Paid in full. That means there's nothing left to do. When Jesus said, it's finished, you mark it down, he paid it all. If you try to add your good works to it, if you try to bring your religion into it, if you try to do anything else to revise it, to change it in any way, then you destroy the gospel. It's the gospel that is the power of God unto salvation. The pure, simple gospel that we receive by faith. And the sad thing is, so many people have the idea that they've got to do something in order to be saved. That it's as though they're depending upon walking down the aisle, or they're depending upon saying a prayer, or depending upon doing some good deeds, or any of those things. And 
the fact of the matter is, none of those things matter. Because we can't even do anything that's pleasing in the sight of God till after we've been saved. We think about that word justified. Think about God as being the judge and, and declaring you to be innocent of all guilt. That is no blot on your record, no sin on your list, no condemnation but delivered from the eternal wrath of God. None of us deserve to go to heaven. Those that are saved are not saved because they're better than anybody else. They're saved because they realize they couldn't be saved by anyone else other than the Lord Jesus Christ. What... What are those wounds? What a powerful, silent sermon that was. That sign of suffering, that symbol of substitution, the source of salvation. And He has the same power to save today as He did even back then. And for those of us that have been saved, this also is a a stimulant for our service. You see, people are motivated by all kinds of different things. Sometimes it's pride. There's some people involved in Christian service just out of pride. They want to be seen. They, you know, they want to get attention. And so that's all it's about is pride. It shouldn't be that way, but it really is. There are others that are motivated out of fear. You know, I've got to go to church. I've got to serve God. I've got to do all of these things because I'm afraid of what God might do if I don't. And, and by the way, that kind of fear for God is a good thing. You ought to fear God, but that must not be your primary motivation. Others are motivated out of reward, what, what they'll get out of it. And that can be a good thing. Jesus said we're to lay up for ourselves treasures in heaven. That can be a good thing. But that must not be our primary motivation. Our primary motivation for serving God, the thing that stimulates us, excites us, and moves us to serve God, is love. We love Him because He first loved us. And as Paul said, the love of Christ constraineth us, that if one died for all, and he did, since he died for us, we ought to live for him. But if you're here this morning and you've never received Christ as your Savior, today might be your last opportunity to do so. You never know. You're one heartbeat. One breath away from eternity. And it'll be too late then. I'm so glad that whenever I was talking to Tyler, he, he assured me this is all out of his experience. His, this is just a story explaining how he feels as a result of, of what's gone on in his life. And, and that, that, same, that same excitement and thrill can become yours. The greatest day of your life is the day that you stop trying and start trusting in the shed blood of Jesus Christ.
and depend upon Him for the salvation of your soul. Would you do that this morning right here, right now? If you've got a question, we'll help you the best we can. But in reality, you don't need our help. You simply need to acknowledge Christ as your Lord and your Savior, trusting Him to save you. And then would you come and share that with us this morning? While we stand together, as we sing a verse of invitation this morning, it might be that you're here and you've been saved. It might be that you've been serving God now for a number of years. And it might be that you've been even serving for the wrong reason. It might be that there was a time when you were faithful in your service to the Lord. But for whatever reason, something has discouraged you. Something has has come into your life that has left you bitter and fearful and and just angry at life in general. And for whatever reason, you just stopped serving God. And look, He never stopped on you. He never quit on you. He never gave up on you. And you need to get up and brush yourself off and get on with the Master's business. While we sing, whatever it is God would have you to do, would you come as we sing? His blood was shed for me and for you and for the sins of the whole world. 